0: from military to major corporate experience and now into his post-corporate exciting entrepreneurial career. So I think I'm just really glad to have you here, Rick. Um, So with that, I want you, before you really introduce yourself, I want you to answer the question that I have all of my security super friends answer. And that is, who is your favorite superhero and why?
1: Well, okay, that we could spend the next day or two talking about this because I am a superhero guy, right? I learned to read, and I know the issue that I finally figured out that I wanted to read. It was Avengers 101 back in the 1970s, all right? So um, I'm a huge comic book fan, and I'm always in favor of the superheroes who are not that strong. I don't want the Superman and the Hulks and the Thors, uh, you know, because you can't hurt those guys. I want the – Superhero that has a little bit of ability, but uh, he can get hurt. So my favorite right now is the Miles Morales version of Spider-Man. Okay. And if you haven't seen Spider-Man into the verse, you should stop everything that you're doing and go watch that. Uh, the second one, if, you're looking, if you really love that stuff, is the Jessica Jones TV series on Netflix. Perfect. Just my kind of superhero, and it's a fantastic story.
0: All right, so you like this particular version of Spider-Man and Jessica Jones because they are super-ish. That's my takeaway.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're super-ish. They have a little bit of power, but not that much. Okay, so, uh, you know, you could aspire to it. You know, there's a chance that I could be that person. That's the reason I like them.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, I, I love that. And I always try to connect the superhero to some security idea. And, you know, I think, you know, for myself as a CISO, as a serial recovering CISO, you know, I, I, we are at a disadvantage when it comes to the bad guys, right? They're distributed. They are fast. They are innovating. And then there's, you know, there's us. But we have some super some superpowers, right? And so I'd say that I would liken your version to reality is that, you know, it's, the, it's like the CISO superhero. How is that? Did I, did I spin it really well?
1: That's, uh, you know, that's really interesting because there's a great book on the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame page called Worm by Mark Bowden, and he talks about, it's a history of the Conficker uh, worm, if you remember from back in the day, but he has a chapter for everything that happens in that story, and uh, he, the quote is from some comic book because all the people that were trying to take down the Conficker worm or like superheroes to him, you know, a little shy. Uh, they have some special capability. They're trying to save the world, right? And they're trying to band together to stop some evil. So I
0: I really like that. Great. And we're gonna at the towards the end, we're gonna get into your the into the canon and hear some of your your top favorites. So worm, everyone go yeah, out worm. and read worm. All right. Rick. We want to know about you and your career. Your your ascendancy to world domination. You started in, you know, all the way, you <laughs> know education, military, all the way to what you're doing now. It'd be great to hear a little bit of, about that and how you matured and and just yeah, give us the background on Rick.
1: Well, I grew up in South Dakota, all right, and uh, my dad was a gold miner. Of all things, and uh, the only way I was ever going to get out of that town and not be a gold miner—not that gold mining is bad—but I didn't want to do it—was to join the military. And so I got an opportunity to enlist uh, into the army, and then from there I got to jump. I got an opportunity to go to the military academy, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, And all all through that, I knew that I was going to do something with computers because I like gaming. I still like gaming. I still play Fortnite at my house, right? So um, I was amazed that you could play, you know, these three-dimensional games with people all around the world um, um, uh, on my computer. So I wanted to get into that somehow, uh, which led to my career in the military as a Signal Corps officer, which is basically communications. Um, I spent the first 10 years of my Army career doing tactical comms meaning going to the woods, getting muddy and cold and making sure that units could talk in the field. And then I realized that, geez, it's really cold and miserable out there. Maybe I should go work in garrison. So I came back to camp, post and station and ran the networks for various uh, places. Okay, And uh, from there, that's right when cybersecurity was really starting. Okay, Uh, We were just beginning to figure out that we needed to protect those environments. Uh, And the best job I had, uh, in the military for securing stuff was um, I was the commander of the army computer emergency response team. Uh, we were basically coordinating offensive and defensive operations for army networks uh, in the you know early 2000s. Right. And geez, what a fantastic job that was. Right. And I've told this story over and over. So people, some people may have heard this, but uh, the guy that invented this place where we're going to do this job, he was a Star Trek fan. Right. And so he didn't want the place where the army was going to do offensive and defensive operations to look like Dilbert City, you know, a bunch of cubicles. All right. And so he flies out to Paramount Studios and says, I want to build the bridge of the Star Trek, uh, the Starship Enterprise for our information dominant center. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. All right. Because it's copyrighted. But we'll give you the designers who designed the set for the next generation Star Trek TV show. And so that's what he built in this Army Operations Center. Giant screen in the front, chrome paneling everywhere, uh, a captain's chair that I sat in every day. I never did anything in it, but I sat in it because, you know, you can, right? Uh, a raised platform behind me where, you know, Worf would stand in the TV show. And I swear I'm not making this up. Behind Wharf, there was a conference room with sliding glass doors. And the engineer that designed the room put the sound effect in. So when they opened and closed, it went pshhh, just like the old TV show. Okay. So, I mean, how great is that? I got to work there for two and a half years. Uh, I would have done it for free if they would have let me. That's awesome. um, so um, that's how I got my taste in the cybersecurity. And then I did something strange when I retired. Um, most people like me would have joined some one of the Beltway bandits, like, you know, Raytheon or Booz Allen Hamilton, because They're kind of pseudo-military anyway. But my first job out of the military was uh, counterpain, one of the first MSSPs. And they had nothing to do with the government. They didn't sell contracts to the government. It was a pure play uh, commercial service. And so I had to learn very quickly how to operate in a civilian environment and not in a military environment. And the best story I have for that is I knew when I came out of the military that I was going to have to tone down my personality, you know, because in the military, you're the boss. You can say anything and people do it, right, because that's just the way it works. Uh, In the civilian side, it's a little bit more uh, discussion going on. So I, on purpose, toned my personality down so I wouldn't uh, make a lot of enemies. And then my first performance objective the following year. Uh, My boss said, you know, you need to tone your personality down because it's really too much. So (laughs) I had to learn that skill as a civilian. Um, So from there, I've done cybersecurity in the civilian world um, uh, at various places. I ran an intelligence business at VeriSign called iDefense. I got my first CISO gig at a government contractor called TASC. And then I got my first big corporate gig at Palo Alto Networks after that. uh, I was the chief security officer there. For about six years, uh, and then last November, I guess almost over a year ago now, um, it was time for me to go. And I thought I was going to retire, retire. And you know, my wife and I were talking about traveling or whatever. Uh, and this, the CyberWire folks called me, all right, and said, "You know, you've been on our show a thousand times, uh, talking about various things. Why don't you come on and be be a journalist?" and that's what I am. Okay, I've been there for about a year now. I have my I do two different podcasts and uh, I'm having a blast. I, uh, I have my own studio at home. I got I got podcast lights, I got my own headsets. I, I feel like I'm a real professional uh, podcaster at this point.
0: You're just like a real professional podcaster. In fact, Rick, <laughs> you are. <laughs> so that's great. I'll be looking forward to getting your your tips after we uh, after we finish this. So, all right. Let's jump into some questions that are obviously based on your background. So you have a background in threat intelligence with the military. Mm-hmm. And by the way, thank you for your service. And you, you know, sir. great. And you were a CISO for arguably the top security company in the world, one of them for sure. And you dealt with nation state threats. And so given that background, what are your thoughts on the solar winds, I call it macro breach? Is it the tip of the iceberg or is it just the one we're aware of, et cetera?
1: Yeah, uh, solar ones brought a lot of uh, spotlight to uh, this kind of um, third-party um, attack vector, right? Where we go after we don't go directly at the victim, go, we go after a supporting arm, compromise them, and then use that as the way to get in. And I think the reason the press really went with this is that it seems so huge, okay, that you know it affected so many different uh, potential victims. But it isn't like we haven't had these supply chain attacks in the past. I mean, you go all the way back to Target and Home Depot. Those were supply chain attacks. the bad guys uh, didn't go after them directly. They went after their third-party contractors. So we've known about this. Uh, and if you look at the sandworm attacks, uh, Russians going against Ukraine, okay, uh, absolutely supply chain attacks. Um, so, what this really did was put the spotlight on the U.S. here, okay, in a massive victim list, so that I guess that got everybody's attention. Um, so, uh, I think it's important, but it's also, this supply chain thing is not something that typical CISOs have dealt with in the past. You know, they, they haven't really had that underneath their umbrella. So, it's a new thing for many of them, I think.
0: Great. I do think it's a new thing for many of them. And that's what leads to my next question and helping them think about how to respond to these things. Again, given a bit of your background. So SolarWinds is really about supply chain risk. And with now with the rapid digital transformation across enterprise, so the adoption obviously of public cloud, a lot more SaaS services, and all that being backed by cloud native development, right? So how should the modern CISO prepare themselves for the emerging modern supply chain threat landscape. That's a lot of words. But we're seeing a big difference in how software is produced in terms of the advent of massive amounts of third-party, um, you know, SaaS, whatnot, and lots of open source. What is a, a modern CISO? As they think about this threat, what do they need to start thinking about? How do they need to be scaling up? What's your advice?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I've talked about this before in, in various uh, different venues, right? But um uh, most of the CSOs that I talked to during my show and, uh, you know, this past year, okay. have really been raising the bar about where they focus their efforts. And it's really about where their data is, right? What is the data that's going to cause a material impact to their organization? And, you know, when, when I was doing CISO work, you know, geez, 10 years ago, okay. We all basically had a, uh, firewall that made us a perimeter okay back at headquarters some of us that were a little bit larger had our own data centers but that was it okay there wasn't a whole lot of places where your data was going to be stored but just in the last decade okay your data is everywhere okay it's still in those data centers and still back on prem. it's in every sales office around the world but it's also uh, in a gazillion SaaS applications so at the cyberwire we're just a small little company we have 28 saas services that keeps the business running so our data is scattered all through that place right and as we all race to the cloud for lots of benefits um then our data is scattered all through there right? and so what we're trying to do is protect where the data is and it's become so complicated okay to put prevention controls in all those places uh that we've almost become overwhelmed okay with the amount of work that has to get done so much so that uh, most of us aren't getting it done with any kind of speed or efficiency, um, and and what happened just even before we even went to the cloud, we had too many security tools that we all had to manage. You know, when I started doing this back in the nineties, you know, we just had three. Okay, we had a firewall, we had an intrusion detection system, and we all had antivirus. And if we had some money, some of us had two antivirus systems on our endpoints. Right, so you know, wow, we were great. You know, but today's uh, businesses, you know, even small companies have ten to fifteen security tools that they're managing, and that's before they go to the cloud. Big organizations, like and you know, like big finance and big government, like U.S. government, you know, some of those organizations have three hundred security tools that they're trying to manage, uh, and they can't do it with the amount of people they have, especially can't doing it manually. All right, so what we're looking for is the, the big thing that's coming to fruition in the last five years or so is an ability to orchestrate. Your security tool set across all the data islands, right? And how do you do that? You're going to do that with automation, and you're going to try to find a tool or a set of tools that integrates in all your data set. Okay? And um, and so that's where that's where everybody's thinking about how do they find that tools or who should they be in? And my, you know, and I'm a little bit biased. I came from Palo Alto Networks, one of the big security orchestration platforms but all of their platforms have this capability. All of their competitors have this capability. So we're talking about Palo Alto Networks, Checkpoint, Cisco, Fortinet, uh, and maybe a handful of others that could do this kind of work wherever your data is for SaaS applications, cloud providers, data centers, uh, mobile users, and all that. You, one security vendor that can do most of those jobs for you.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, and. I love the orchestration term you know it's been around but i think it's taking on uh new meaning um, or a greater meaning so when we think of data by the way and particularly if we think of solar winds um, what we have is supply chain attacks that are you know essentially implanting themselves in software and as i think of again modern software development continuous integration continuous deployment as i think of third-party cloud providers actually becoming the cicd for companies so meaning where you have an enterprise their own developers are committing code up to you know a repo and moving through a pipeline their third parties distributed throughout the world as are other teams are doing the same thing it seems to me that the attack surface that part of the attack surface where in theory you know bad guys could infiltrate into the software which is data essentially that's being stored in github gitlab you know gitbucket etc it's the data, it's it's what accesses the data as well. It just seems to me that there is a large, again, a large expansive attack surface that hasn't quite been addressed yet. I do think it's an orchestration solution space as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you know what the likes of uh, Palo Alto, I'm, not that we're selling Palo Alto here, but others yeah. are going to do. And I suppose the question I have for you is this then, knowing that we're talking about modern High velocity development. You know, I came from one of my CISO gigs. We, when I showed up, they were doing what fifty thousand releases a year. That's a hobby in comparison. Comparison to what they do now, um, and there are lots that are doing that sort of velocity. How are the legacy security companies going to be able to pivot and adjust for that sort of environment? Particularly as I talk about again, you talk about data treating code like data. It's deployed everywhere. Everyone's accessing it. Everyone's committing to it. What do you? What do you see putting your kind of your futurist hat on? What do you see emerging that's going to help solve that? I'm of the opinion that it's difficult for the legacy companies to pivot. That's why they acquire, I suppose. But I think it's going to be, I think it's, it's hugely difficult, but I'd like to hear your, your thoughts.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of pieces of good news here, right? And one of the conversations we've been having with the CSOs this past year is, you know, trying to figure out what we're, what we're, what is the ultimate thing that we are trying to accomplish, right? I'm a big believer in first principle theories, right? So if, I, if you put a bunch of CISOs in a room and said, okay, I know our day consists of a bazillion different things, but at the end of it, what are you trying to accomplish? Okay, what is the thing that you're trying to solve, right? And from my perspective, we're trying to reduce the probability of a material impact to our organization. And we can argue about whether or not that's the case, but in my mind, that's the most important thing. So the basic steps then from that, the very next things you would do, and in terms of strategy is, um, I have three or four that we could talk about, right? First one is uh, intrusion kill chain prevention. That means that we know pretty much what all adversaries do across the intrusion kill chain, at least 95% of it. Why wouldn't we have prevention controls in place uh, across the entire attack sequence. So whatever that is. The second one is zero trust. And this is where we're gonna get to how do you, would you have been safe against solar winds if you had some sort of zero trust program in place? I believe you would. All right, zero trust assumes that bad guys are gonna get in, but you can reduce the amount of damage they can do. So yes, solar winds happen. They, uh, the bad guys compromised them. They sent in a, you know, Trojan horse basically with their update software, All right? But that wasn't where the problem was, okay? The problem was that from there, the bad guys authorized uh, tokens for their cloud environments of their victims. And nobody was watching that, okay? That's the zero trust that we should have locked down. There there should be nobody saying automatically that this, this machine or this person gets to authorize access tokens to our cloud environments. Somebody should have been watching that, right? And so if you would have had a, Zero trust program in place, you might have been safe from the zero uh, from the Solar Winds attacks. All right, so intrusion kill chain, um, uh, zero trust. The third one that you should be pursuing is resilience. Okay, uh, how do you survive an attack like Solar Winds? All right, and many people do. I mean, you look at the way uh, FireEye responded to the Solar Winds attack. That is textbook way to respond to the press. All right, they, uh, you know, yes, there was damage to them, but it was minimal damage because of the way they did it. You could tell they had planned it out beforehand and they executed their playbook. So resilience in, in the face of a, an attack, that's a great way to do it. And the last one is near and dear to both of our hearts is how do you measure risk, all right? You and I talk about risk all the time, all right? And if the, if the first principle theory is reduce the probability of material impact, how do you figure out what the probability is? And most of us, CSOs, we suck at this, okay? We have no idea how to do this. And you should absolutely read your book, all right? Uh, how to Measure Everything in Cybersecurity Risk to get a feeling for what you're up against in the coming years, so that's coming. That was a long-winded story about strategy. There is a new technique out there that I think is gonna be perfect for solar wind style attacks, these supply chain attacks. And it's really, I think, um, I didn't think it was a use case until just recently, but it's all about the Sassy uh, Secure Access. Uh, what's it, it? What does it stand for? Do you remember? Rick? Secure Access Service Edge. Sassy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Secure Access Service Edge. I think it is right. Yeah. It's a fundamentally different way to architect your environments, right? And essentially, it is instead of me managing all the security tools back in my environments and all the places where I store data, you contract with a security vendor who does that for you. And the first hop out of your wherever you are is through the SASE vendor security stack. And it's also managed by an SD WAN. So you can do it across your entire environment. And those guys have pairing connections with giant content providers like Google and Amazon and else, whoever else you need to get to. So let's just say we have that in place. The perfect application for a SASE vendor is to absolutely run all your third-party vendors through the SASE stack before they get to anything inside your network, right? What a perfect way to solve that problem, right? Right. And so you could do zero trust there. You can do intrusion kill chain prevention there, right? And so um, I think that might be the way forward uh, uh, for this kind of third-party attack.
0: Great. You mentioned, you know, SD WAN. We've been talking about cloud native. in short, you know, software is eating or has eaten the world, right? <laughs> so it's software defined everything. So now infrastructure is defined as code, right? Developers are defining and deploying cloud infrastructure that combined with things like serverless or functions as a service are also changing how people structure their teams and, uh, and their titles actually. So putting again, your futurist hat on, how do you think the roles and responsibilities are changing with technology changes. Again, as we're moving into an incredibly distributed software-defined everything world. What does that mean for security?
1: I had an epiphany on this 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 past year because I had a different thought about this. and I think you and I have even talked about this in various places, All right? And we've all recognized that software or infrastructure as code is the way we're gonna go. So for the last three or four years, I've been saying, you know, in the future, the, the best skill a security person is gonna have is a coder first and then security second. I just assumed that we would all become developers and I've come to realize that doesn't work, okay? That's not, going to ha- that's not how it's gonna be, right? Uh, you're not gonna have a super uh, person on your, in your socks who can who is a high-speed developer, who understands intrusion kill chain, who understands resilience, you know, that person doesn't exist. What is going to happen though, I believe, is this working together, all right? We need the devs and the security people and the SOC people and the Intel people all in the same room as they design the infrastructure as code infrastructure that they're going to have. So the code, I mean, the the skills that we need to develop as security professionals is how do we reach across the aisle to the CIO, to the dev team, to the dev ops team? to the site reliability engineers and get embedded in their development process so that we can put in the framework that we need to manage our security environments the way we need to uh, manage them.
0: You know, I too thought that as a CSO, I'd be hiring a lot of developers and I certainly have hired mm-hmm. people with software development skills. I mean, I came from development sure. myself, I guess, before, before I became a recovering CSO, I was a recovering bad developer. <laughs> um, but I think there's something to what you say. I mean, the reality is just being able to orchestrate kill chain, as you said, just the depth of knowledge um, and the ability to, you know, just roll with the punches as an incident is going on or managing multiple instance incidents in parallel. That's mm-hmm. that skill set. You're not going to have time to keep up with development. I mean, you know, I think I think there's a lot to what you just said. It's going to be a diversity of skill sets and people types that are, are necessary.
1: Yeah, it, and um, yeah, it's all about team uh, teamwork here. This isn't. I think we've gone well past the point where security people can sit in their own enclave and not talk to anybody and just you know track down adversaries. Yeah, uh, it's time to get out in the hallway and start talking to people about how to make the infrastructure better. And right. uh, yeah, that we're going to have to get better at that.
0: Agreed. So switching topics a little bit, something you already actually ta- touched on briefly, we both share a deep-seated interest in all things risk management. I think it's a function of being a CISO, frankly. but And over the <laughs> past few years, you've started to go a lot deeper on the quantitative side, right? So what is it that you are seeing in the security world that is driving you specifically and in your interest in more advanced quanti- quantification methods?
1: Yeah, and in fact, you and I have done a presentation on this at RSA. I, I, this is one of my pet peeves, because I've tried the way all CISOs have done it. I've done it myself, right? And it doesn't work, okay? Um, we've used the standard uh, tool of a heat map for my entire career, right? And, you know, and for those that don't, I'm sure most people that listen to you knows what these things are, but, you know, it's, it's essentially a qualitative graph where the really nasty stuff floats high into the right. On your chart, and the stuff that's not so nasty floats low and to the left. And then I'll go into a board meeting, circle the stuff high into the right and say, This is really scary. Give me some money so I can fix it. You know, and sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't, but it just wasn't a good way to do it. All right. And your book and other books that talk about risk have proven over and over again that qualitative heat maps like that, making risk decisions with those kinds of tools is just bad science, right? And so why would we embrace that? So we're looking for a quantitative approach and I will tell you uh, most of our peers, uh, this scares them to death. They don't think they can do it, right? And we need a lot of help in this regard.
0: I've really appreciated your interest um, in in our book. By the way, none of this is, I did not ask Rick to, you know, be a shameless shill for my book, or did I? No, I didn't. And I- (laughs) I know, he sends me
1: monthly checks to to (laughs) say nice things about his book.
0: (laughs) But it is, you know, it is a big topic, and this is probably one where we could do uh, maybe a a panel um, on this. But, you know, as- we do move into more of a software defined environment as there is more distributed computing and distributed development and distributed teams. There's just more entropy. There's just more chaos. And the thing is when you're uncertain, that's when you use the methods of uncertainty. It's not that you say things are too uncertain. Therefore I'm going to stop measuring or I'm going to stop doing security. It's just too impossible. It's actually when you are uncertain that you measure And I think sometimes people get that backwards. It's a minor epiphany of the obvious. It's like, okay, I measure when I don't know if I'm gonna fit through that hole, I'm not sure. So, you know, I'm gonna measure. So we get that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just gonna
1: say most of, you know, people like, you know, most of our peers were not mathematicians in college. In fact, I know I barely got through the mandatory probability and stats course, okay. And and most of us think that uh, figuring out probability is counting things and, you know, figuring out the likelihood of something popping up. And that's a piece of it, but that's not what you were talking about. That's not measuring uncertainty, right? And uh, so I think all of us have a lot, we have to broaden our horizons a bit uh, to understand what you were just talking about there.
0: Well, if this helps anybody a little bit about my background, I know this is not all about Rich. I have a Bachelor of Music in Classical Guitar Performance, right? That's my undergraduate. I, <laughs> I wore a touch. And you
1: understand probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably have blown it. And, you know, um, I have uh, a, a master's that was in, in in the psychology area around decision making and whatnot. Um, but it was definitely all more on the softer side of things. Later in life, I got very interested in, in this sort of stuff because of what I was confronting at work in terms of just, you know, adversaries and environments that were hard to, hard to reason over, honestly. And because they're hard, I, I had to look outside myself, obviously military, like military logistics and other things like that, looking outside, like, where are people dealing with chaotic actors that can hurt you? And how are they reasoning over those? And how are they beating the odds? And that's what I, I suppose I'd encourage anyone. You don't have to have a mathematical background. Um, in fact, a lot of people who've done all of the innovation in a lot of probability stuff were amateurs. I mean, they were priests, honestly, going back 200 years ago with Bayes and whatnot. So I just encourage any of you, <clears throat> listen, if you have a problem and you're passionate about it, go for it. You don't have to be the expert. You just need to be able to think hard and work hard. So with that, <clears throat> you are a huge book fan. Not a fan of naturally big books. You're a fan of a lot of books. And so you started the Cybersecurity Canon, which continues to this day. So what's on your nightstand right now in the security space, what are must and what are must read canon books from your perspective.
1: Uh, I'm just finishing up a a book by Singer uh, called Like War. Uh, He chronicles the history of influence operations. Right. And from the last, say, 10 years or so, right. We've uh, influence operations and military constructs been around forever. You know, we used to drop leaflets during wartime and try to influence the, you know, the enemy that way. Uh, But in the last 10 years, with the rise of social media, okay, they become uh, real life political tools used by politicians and just general citizenry around the world. Um, and he really lays down the, uh, what that all means. So I recommend it. It's, uh, it's a, it's, if you try, if you think you know what it is, I guarantee you, you don't know what it is until you read this book. So I'm just finishing that up. Um, I just finished a book called Code Girls, which you might find really interesting. Um, it's about the US effort to break Japanese codes during World War II. Most people are familiar with uh, the work going on that went on in Bletchley Park against the Germans and the Enigma machine. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite movies is the imitation game uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing. All right. If you haven't watched that, go watch that immediately. All right. But there was a parallel effort going on in the States to break the Japanese codes. And most of that was done with women. right. And they're just now getting their due course for that uh, that important effort they did uh, during that time. So um, fantastic uh, book. Um, So but I want to make a I'm getting ready to change my recommendation that I usually give to everybody for years. I've been telling everybody the book that they should read if they haven't read anything yet is to read uh, Dr. Clifford Stoll's Cuckoo's Egg. Right, as That was the primer for books, for people like me to get into the cybersecurity business. Uh, It's a little long in the tooth these days, and it's definitely well worth the read. But there are so many cybersecurity books out there now that I think there's a couple poised to take the crown of the must-read book from everybody. So the first one is uh, The Perfect Weapon by David Sanger. It chronicles uh, nation-state cyber activity uh, for the last decade. Okay, and we're talking about the Russians, we're talking about North Korea, um, Iran, the US, uh, who else I'm missing? Oh, China. Okay. Uh, and if you thought, again, if you thought you understood that environment, you don't until you read his book. And in fact, there's a great HBO documentary that they made about the book if you want the Reader's Digest version. So I highly recommend that. Uh, the second one, though, in that vein is a, a, a book called Sandworm that focuses on the Russians and their cyber attacks against Ukraine. Okay. And that'll scare the crap out of you. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking that uh, those two books are probably um, at some point in the near future, I'm going to have to say, those are the books you should read um, over Cuckoo's Have you read Cuckoo's Richard?
0: No, I'm sitting here wallowing in shame that I haven't read some of these <laughs> books. And so I'm going to remediate that um, right quick. Th- those are awesome. And by the way, um, previously, um, you're talking about leaflets. So, is Twitter now the new digital leaflet? Is that exactly it de- what it is?
1: It definitely is. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and for good and bad, right? The, the social media allows anybody to say anything anytime and to influence people. Um, and sometimes that is watch out for the fire going on down the road. You know, a, you know, new, uh, citizens have become the news now, not just journalists. Right. But it's also uh, evil people that try to uh, uh, disrupt uh, our civilization by telling lies and convincing people that things are true when they're not. And uh, and by the way, there isn't a whole lot that we can do about it except educating people about knowing that it's out there and pay, and uh, you know be very skeptical about what you read
0: it's like learning that when you get an email from the uh, prince in Kenya wanting to wire you several million dollars don't give them your bank account number so yeah
1: yeah you know I'm sure my money is coming in anytime (laughs) okay so day,
0: (laughs) Rick you've been fantastic really this has been great I knew it was going to be extra special security super friends and it has been Um, I appreciate your generosity and sharing your your storied career and your great knowledge with the masses again i thank you for your military service and i'm sure that we're going to probably do something like this again either me talking with you on your part podcast or this again because it's been really fantastic so thank you so much
1: well thanks for having me i really appreciate it and let me you know uh, meander off and talk about all kinds of crazy stuff so thanks sir it was a lot of fun my pleasure